This episode of Why We Bleep is sponsored by Signal Sounds. Yes, friends, you know what I'm talking about. It's a beautiful shop and it's in a beautiful place called Glasgow, filled with cuddly, cuddly people and interesting equipment. Yes, they stock the good stuff. Things from companies such as After Later. They've got Erica Synth, Zendelay, that's the Ninja Tunes collaboration module desktop delay mad thing. They've got all the unpronounceable things from noise engineering. They've got the future sound systems pin matrix thingamaflip, the MTXA and MTXG. Yes, that's like a guitar pedal interface that uses a matrix. I need that in my life. And perhaps the thing that I want the most is that Michigan Synthworks SY 0.5. That is the Syncussion Eurorack module. They have that. They have that in stock. I want that. Interesting things to make electronic music with. Signal Sounds have them. So go to the website signalsounds.com. That is signalsounds.com. Goodness gracious, gravy and whiskers. I hope this finds you an incredibly well person. Welcome, if you've never listened, to Why We Bleep. This is a podcast about talking to electronic musicians and also the people who make the equipment and software that electronic musicians use. It's sort of an interview thing. We chat about why we bleep. And actually, interestingly, this chat with the damn right gosh dang wonderful BT, is very much about why we bleep. In fact, BT sort of more directly addresses that question and brings up an insanely important point around it, uh, which I won't spoil. I'll let you listen to it. But my goodness, uh, BT is a wonderful man. And I'm sure if you sort of know a bit about him and you've seen him interviewed, you're kind of aware of that. I guess you would say that BT is a kind of legend of what is sort of known as the EDM kind of movement, but that is selling his skills incredibly short. A man is insanely talented and he has a 30 year career, has done 13 plus albums, worked on soundtracks for films such as Go, The Fast and the Furious, Monster Gone in 60 Seconds, and has also worked with people such as David Bowie, you know, no biggie. But in addition to this, BT is also a kind of software creator. He has been, you know, working with Isotope, who make the wonderful RX, which I use extensively, but they obviously make lots of creative tools as well. Stutter Edit is the name of the piece of software that BT sort of pioneered. Oh, and the other thing that he did in 2014, he was hired by Disney to create music for Tomorrowland. He created four hours of music for Tomorrowland in Disneyland, which is just, I mean, what a brief, what a incredible job to have worked on. BT has 
by far given the most important answer to the sort of last question that I ask in this podcast, which is what is the future of music technology? And time will prove that it is the most important answer to that question uh, and is a subject that has never been discussed on this podcast, but is being discussed by people like Holly Herndon. It's important, and that is to do with artificial intelligence. Um, but in this conversation, we I kind of... I was really fired up by a video on Facebook, which I will link to. And I, if you can, and if you if you have the time, go and watch this little studio tour. It's like twenty minute studio tour where BT just walks you around his studio. That video is just a great example of a how nice he is as he just chats very humbly about his stuff, but also just how good his taste is in music equipment. Like he has everything you could possibly want. Um, and he uses it daily. And this is the thing that kind of blew my mind. And that's what I really wanted to needle him on a little bit was how do you manage having so much gear and being so prolific as you are? So there is a lot of very practical stuff in this in terms of um, how to arrange equipment and how to approach it. And I don't think that you can listen to this and not sort of start looking around at the gear around you and thinking about different ways to kind of rig stuff up and taking some inspiration from it. Because um, I sure as heck have. Uh, I think a good yardstick to these conversations is whether we bring up Manuel Gottsching's E2, E4 and BT is the second guest to have brought that up. So my cap is thoroughly doffed to you, sir. But before we speak to BT, we have just one short sponsored message from a service that can teach you some amazing new skills. Why We Bleep is also sponsored by Skillshare. Skillshare is a beautiful hub of video-based learning. It offers thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people like you. These classes cover an absolutely multitudinous array of topics. If there's something that you have been thinking about learning more about or teaching yourself, very likely there is a class on that subject on Skillshare. Case in point, yours truly here has been filming little clips of Franco, my son, that's my beautiful boy, throughout the first year of his life. He is about to have his first birthday and I am going to make a video kind of compiling all of those moments together. And there is actually a Skillshare class like this. It's called Filmmaking from Home, How to Turn Found Footage into a Compelling Video, taught by... Penny Lane. No relation, I think, to the Beatles track. And there's a good example of the fact that there's basically a Skillshare class for pretty much anything that you can conceive of. And I have a sweet opening deal for you if you want to try this thing for free by clicking the link in the description for a limited time. The first 1000 people will get a free trial of Skillshare premium membership so you can explore your creativity and learn yourself some new skills. And with that, let's chat. Who's he? It's BT. Thanks. I've been at home and been able to be in the studio and I've been, I've been more productive in the last four or five months than I've been in the last 10 years. So I've gotten so many massive ticket projects checked off 
that would have taken a couple years more, quite literally. I mean, we're in development on 11 pieces of uh, software right now. And I'm, I'm obviously really mindful and compassionate uh, about, you know, my peers and my friends and just kind of the world at large that's struggling. And I feel really blessed that we've had the time to devote to all this creative stuff has been pretty remarkable gift, honestly, you know. It is funny to hear you say that the way we're like, I've, I've actually got some stuff done because I'm like, I'm like looking at your discography and your sort of your CV basically. And it's it, it, all I see is sheer productivity in terms of like, you've just been cranking out albums. Like there's a sort of level of pace that I don't, I think a lot of electronic musicians are not, are simply not so prolific. I suppose the question is like energy levels. How do you maintain it? And, and what does like a typical day look like? You know, how do you actually, what do you do all day? Yeah, that's great. And there's a, there's a lot to unpack there because it, it's by volition. It's, it's very, very deliberate. So just kind of to roll back into a little bit of the sort of macro and kind of my story. I studied music as a kid and very seriously too. I went to conservatory starting when I was seven and I studied with an amazing teacher named Satiris Blahopoulos and he was playing me, you know, Bartok and Stravinsky when other kids my age were listening to or learning, you know, Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, you know, these guys, maybe Chopin if the, their teacher was a little loopy, right? So I had this very, yeah. very kind of progressive teacher who really, his name's Satiris Blahopoulos. He's still alive. He's in his 90s a remarkable man, an incredible composer, and opened my eyes to a lot of what's possible insofar as classical music. And so as a teenager, I fell in love with, you know, English music and culture, and in particular with uh, early new wave music. And I was mowing lawns to, to buy my first synthesizers, you know, paper routes, shoveling driveways. I don't know if you guys have that, but it's like a big thing. You know, I would mow lawns in the summertime and then, you know, deliver deliver papers kind of into the fall and then shovel driveways in the wintertime and kind of looped like that. And I was able to buy my first synthesizers, samplers and drum machines. These things kind of seem like parallel thought threads, you know, synthesis and, and new wave and eventually breakdancing music, breakdancing culture and classical music. But they were kind of my my two loves as as a kid. And the third was, and really it's by introduction through, I think, kind of tinkering, you know, so sort of electronic project kits and stuff are computers. And so I, I started building computers as a really young kid. I did that with my dad. My dad is a, a really a brilliant guy. He's a PhD in engineering. And he and I would work on computers together. Uh, we built a IBM 5150. And that was my that was my first sequencer. I got Voyetra Sequencer Plus Gold for that. And I went to a Berkeley School of Music when I was 15, so uh, I was I was a, a really young kid going there. And so, uh, just to kind of put a bow on this, uh, the the kind of macro pictures, I was a very nerdy, introspective, bright, but uh, maybe not in you know the best way socially sort of kid. And so I didn't have a lot of friends. I was just interested in music and computers and synthesizers. And I went to university. You guys would say really, really early. And so I've been working really hard and studying really hard basically my whole life. And so it's interesting because in, in uh, you know, and then it's another sort of long story, but, you know, moved to Los Angeles after Berkeley and then 
trying to get a record deal, couldn't get a record deal, moved back home, lived with my family um, for about two years and started Deep Dish Records with two of my my closest friends. Uh, and we all sold our clunker cars. You know, we had, I had a, a you know, uh, old a Buick that I had inherited from my dad and uh, sold it. And Ali sold his car and Sharam sold his car. He pulled our money and we started a record label. And the first record that I made got in the hands of Sasha. And then Sasha invited me to come over to England. I got my record deal on that, on that trip. But what you asked me was a really great question about output. And, and I, I wanted to tell a little bit of kind of the backstory. Just, I kind of forfeited a normal childhood for the pursuit of of music yeah. and so i've i have i've had ingrained a kind of unique work ethic from the beginning but um just to, again that was self-directed was it i mean you weren't being pushed to kind of make music by your parents or or were you no it's a great question in fact quite the opposite it was terrifying for my folks yeah. my folks are kind of first generation academics you know we come from uh, both both my parents have their doctorates, and you know they come from families of uh, farmers. And you know, I mean, I, I guess the, the most sort of illustrious thing that someone in my family had done is my grandfather on my mom's side uh, worked uh, worked for Dupont, and which was a big deal. But no one in our family was you know very educated, and so my parents were terrified that my love and uh, sort of fixation on music because, you know, their hope was is that, you know, I was going to go to an Ivy League school and be able to get a scholarship. My parents couldn't afford to send me a place like that. And that, you know, become a, you know, a doctor or a lawyer. And they were completely horrified how obsessed I was with music from an early age, but I was very serious about it. And so they kind of at a point acquiesced and and allowed it to happen. It wasn't until much later that they both of them really sort of, of and of course they loved me and they were supportive, but they were really scared and understandably and and now of course they you know they're they're proud and they understand it, but it was a scary thing for them. <laughs> kind of yeah, you've turned out well in that regard. Like it, it's that gamble of oh he's going to become a musician. Is it is he going to make no money at all? He's ah he's okay. He's okay. What about I mean particularly with synths though? I mean um, why? Because especially if you were kind of classically trained, mm -hmm. can you talk a bit about why you were drawn to synths? Like why why would you mow a lawn for all summer for a synth particularly, not for a violin or for a new piano or more lessons or do you know what I mean? It's like, why a synth? So, and a lot of this again comes back to that teacher that I mentioned, Satiris Wahopoulos, my, my uh, composition and he taught me counterpoint, music theory, orchestration, all these kind of things at a very young age. So he was playing me such wild music, radical music. And I identified at a very early age, if these people were alive and writing music now, that this is what they would be drawn to. Mm. Because, I mean, for example, somebody like, you know, uh, use someone like Wagner, for example, was experimenting so much with orchestral color. You know, he would have the brass section out in the hall. To, to play on, on, on a piece because he was looking for a new timbre or sort of spectral characteristic of the orchestra, a, a color that yeah. didn't exist. And so when I started hearing bands like Depeche Mode and New Order and Cabaret Voltaire and Human League and the, the, 
and all of this incredible music that was coming out of England in, in the early 80s, Howard Jones. And uh, these sounds were absolutely captivating to me. And I thought, if this group of composers that I love and I've been studying since I was a child was alive now, this is what they would be using to make music without question. It's actually unquestionable. This, it, they would without question be using these tools to make music were they to be alive now. So that's how I was drawn to it. So you have this beautiful studio, which is filled with every synthesizer that, that you, you, know, you could, anyone could ever want, drum machines and, and effects as well. And I guess like with regard to like the studio as an instrument, how do you keep a studio where you have every option at your fingertips? How do you make it usable? How do you make sure that if you're going to have every synth at your fingertips, that you can still write quickly and, and stay inspired and not get overwhelmed? So part of it goes back to something that you asked before that I didn't fully answer, which is uh, my answer to be would be talking about time management. And so I live a very sort of disciplined life. Like part of my productivity is down to the way I eat, the way I uh, like the, my physical fitness routine, my sleep routine. I have a morning routine with uh, meditation. And so many of those things absolutely amplify my creative life in a way that is kind of unspeakable because I've gone for periods where I haven't done those things. And so I can see the, this, this kind of cascading downward negative effect to my creative output. So yeah. time management and everything that happens outside of the studio. So basically the other kind of 70 to 80% of life is really, really uh, disciplined for lack of a better descriptor. So it's the same. And that, and I bring that up because the same applies to the way that my studio is designed and how I use it. So for a start, the studio segmented into three, actually four, and I'll speak about the fourth in a second, but three very specific sections, which is mixed position and mixed position includes most of the left-hand wall, which is where a lot of the synthesizers live. And uh, yeah. it also includes the ring immediately around me, which has a Prop 5, a Jupiter 8, an OBXA, the GDS, the Fairlight, uh, two mini Moogs, uh, OBXA, SHO9, OB6, um, an Oscar, but my Oscar is in repair right now. It's one of my favorite synths. I miss oh, it a damn. lot. Um, yeah. And so kind of my main, my main sort of writing cohorts, right? All live right there around me. And that's, that is the most important area of the studio is that inner ring and the synth wall. That's area one. Okay. Area two is the modular and drum machine area that's connected to its own bespoke computer. It's an old G5 cheese grater, they call them. And that's hooked to a Midas Venice F32. And I yeah. use that basically as a tape deck. So quite literally, I'm not using any DAW functions in there. Uh, I'm using it for sync, a little bit of effects, and my modular and all the drum machines and everything that lives on the right-hand side of the room is its own station. So it doesn't even speak okay. to mix position at all. There's no tie lines right. to get audio there. I quite literally have to print things. And then, and I'm kind of giving away what the punchline is going to be to this by saying this, but it's completely disconnected from the rest of the room. It's an activity. 
So I go over on that side of the room. I power up the modular, the old modular stuff, the ARP 2600, two vintage SEMs, a rolling system 100A, my step mm -hmm. sequencers, Eurorack stuff, and I write there. And so that's an activity. I write there or I record drum machine parts over there. I print them to what I would consider tape. It's actually the disc. And then I take those renders and I pull them to mix position. So the, the third area is, um, there aren't four. There's three actually. So the third area is the area in the back, back left corner of the room. And basically that's kind of my nineties area. And I set that up identical to the setup that I had when I made movement in still life and even ESCM. I bundled those two rigs together in a very small corner. So I have the Juno one six. I love, I love that you've done this by the way. I think <laughs> it that had to be done. Incredible. Like recreate your 1997 rig within your room, like self-contained is, yeah. is brilliant. It's it. crazy too. Cause I literally, I did it from photos. So I even, put the gear at the same height and in the same order, like, wow. you know, an O3RW on top of the K2500 and on top of the SideQuest 270 meg, you know, kind of cartridge thing to hold sounds for the K2500. So it's, it's quite literally identical to my, the rig that I had when I made EMA, which is in my bedroom at my parents' house. And then right to the right of it is this OS9 Pro Tools 24-bit rig uh, that I made movement in still life on. And so those two areas are interfaced together. So, and the sequencer for that area is that IBM 5150 that my dad and I built together. And I, I've oh retrofitted God. it. It's got a, it's got a, a CF card reader in it. Now it's boot disk is, is, uh, an, an SSD, which is ridiculous for a computer made in, I guess, 80 yeah, yeah, yeah. or something. But, um, so the, the point to all of this is, is each area in the room is an activity. And so I never have it all on at once and I'm never distracted by having that amount of stuff because in each area is like, I'm doing something purposeful. I'm not kind of like, you know, so for example, with the modular, I'm scoring a video game right now and I'm about a year and a half into it. And uh, it's a three year project. It's coming out in 2022 and I had a half hour music due and I wanted to do a lot of interesting kind of isorhythmic tangerine dreamy type stuff so i would never sit in a mixed position and do that it's so fun you like stand up put patch cables around your neck and in three hours i can make piece after piece after piece in the modular area print them print them print them send them you know and get feedback on them do some tweaks print them again while i still have patches up and then that's kind of oh. what it is. So the final thing I'm going to say about this that I hope, you know, to people that listen to this, it, it will be helpful is this, is the reason I'm able to make so much music and the time management stuff, the way the studio's organized are, are both incredibly important, really comes down to one thing is my auto loads. So I have such incredible auto loads for all of these setups that it's quite literally a couple power switches and everything is at unity volume everything has midi assigned to it everything has a bespoke compressor eq starting place on it all my effect sends are all set up so i literally in a couple clicks of power switches and then launching an auto load for whatever that task is i'm ready to write and record so it takes it cuts all the fat out of the process of like 
setting thing up each time I go to do it. So if I'm going to make a piece of synth focused music using my inner ring, I have an auto load for that. If I don't want to use that left wall of synths, if I only need things in the inner ring, I have an auto load for that too. If I'm going to do cinematic composing, I power up basically what's my Synclavier, which is the, the, uh, this PC audio labs kind of supercomputer with like half a terabyte of rant. It's this ridiculous machine. Power that up audio over IP. Cubase auto load, 3000 contact instruments ready to write. And literally I click one button and I can render out 32 bit stereo stems out of this orchestral auto load that is thousands and thousands of contact instruments. So that's like kind of another auto load. So it's all down to these auto loads that I'm able to be so hyper productive. It's so funny because so, so many people that are, our fans are music creators themselves, you know? And so for so long, people have been like, man, how are you making this much music at this kind of quality and, and want to know production stuff. And so finally we, uh, we're, we've been working on it. Actually, we're doing a masterclass just for this reason to kind of show some of these things. Cause I really think that they're going to get a lot of people tremendously unstuck because yeah. I think creative people are wired to be creative right? And not wired for all this technical stuff. Now, the interesting thing is, um, and I, it's kind of top of mind because I did a module about this last week, is we, you know, people said, well, what do you do when you have writer's block? You know, you must not get writer's block. I'm like, dude, I get writer's block all the time. Like, I feel creative when I have creative time blocked out, probably 20% of my creative time. And people are like, well, so what do you do? Like sit and stare? And I'm like, no. You organize your sound libraries, you work on your auto loads, you make patches. There's a hundred thousand things to do that are gifts for your future self, right? So when you do feel yeah, creative, yeah. you sit down, you hit three power switches and you're like, I'm ready to rock. So yeah. it's that kind of balance of time between these sort of perfunctory like things that us creative types don't like to do, which you can do when you feel, don't feel that creative that is a gift for your future creative self. So, um, yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. The, um, my question also is about the Eurorack stuff. I, mm -hmm. I saw in the video, but it would be great if you could talk a bit about particularly how you integrate Eurorack without disappearing into it. Do you know what I mean? Although it seems <laughs> that you do. kind of do disappear into it. That, that, and I really, I like that as well. Cause it's, I recognize why that's valuable. It's like, it is a, Eurorack is a time sink and you've kind of almost said, it's a time sink. Therefore, I'm going to have my own area for it. But right. can you talk a bit about, you do integrate the clocks though. And, and, and with what though? How does that all work? So I use in that area, uh, MSQ, I think it's an MSQ 80. I'd have to Google this. I I'll Google it while I'm telling you it. So it's a very old sync box. It's old Roland sync box. I found it. SBX 80. That's what it is. A Roland SBX 80. There's a lot of things that are great about it. But my favorite thing is it's got a freaking tempo knob on it. So I actually slave that cheese grater to the SBX80, which is crazy because when I write something in the modular area, it's always fractional tempos. Like if you look at my the tempos of songs that I write in the area, it'll be 114.23. And you're like, how did that happen? Oh, yeah, I did that. That started in the modular area. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's so fun because if you think about it, when you're in a DAW, it's part of why I love that area. It's, and it's part of the design of that area. There's a knob 
and you turn the knob and you're listening to the tempo of the music change. You're like, oh, that's nice right there. And you could have been working 15 BPMs away from that. But when you're in a DAW, you know, you're thinking, okay, 110. Oh, yeah. All right. That's synth wave. Okay. 176. Okay. Yeah. That's drum and bass. Okay. 128. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, house music. 124. Oh, that's deep. You know, you're not thinking like that. You're just like, "Uh," turn the tempo knob and you're like, oh, wow, this sounds great there. You're not not thinking, you're just listening, which is part of what I love about that area. So you you bring up something really interesting with Eurorack and and I'm going to just frame it in this kind of pre-frame it in this overarching aesthetic. I don't care how you make a sound, just as long as it's a sound that you love and it suits your composition. So that goes for my friends, for other people that make music, for my own music. My hope is that everyone is making music just makes sounds they like. It doesn't really matter how you get there or what it was or how you got inspired. And I'll tell an anecdotal story that's kind of funny. So I have a, I studied with a professor at, at Berkeley who's still a mentor of mine, literally gives, like, I did a thing around Stunner Edit 2. Uh, an interview for Berkeley, which is where I went to school. And, and at the end of the, he, he interviewed me and he's like still my mentor. And at the end of it, he, you know, he was like, his name's Dr. Boulanger. He, uh, he said, okay, uh, BT, now I want you to go and uh, have a look at the isorhythms on this piece and tell me what you find. And I'm like, okay, I will, but I have a lot of stuff to hand it to a lot of people. So he still teaches me now. He's an amazing, amazing man. Anyway, uh, he and I want, and I think this is good to, you know, have those kind of friendly, creative arguments with people that teach you. And I, I wouldn't categorize it as an argument, but we had a conversation. So he taught me C sound, which is something I use constantly. I use it all the time. I studied it for 10 years. Uh, the learning curve to it is horrific, but once you get your head around it, it's just, oh my goodness, it is such an incredible environment, especially for sound design. So he, and he taught me how to use it. And we had this, yeah. th- we had this conversation, I'll say one time where he was like, well, yeah, so, you know, and um, so-and-so's uh, one of his students, you know, they generated an FT table to make the sine wave. And it was a lot of deliberate hard work and i was like here hey dr b check this out and i pull up esx or ex you know exs 24 and i'm like like that and he's like what are you and i'm like you don't need to do all that like why would you waste your time in this intellectual exercise of like okay so you're smart and you generated a sine wave and a smart wave i could have written a piece of music in the amount of time that it took to do that so the, the 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 kind of story here is I think that the most important thing is putting yourself in creative environments and workflows that inspire creative thought. And at the end of the day, what matters is what comes out the speakers. It doesn't matter what you made it with. So if that's in the box, if it's a hardware synthesizer, if it's a kazoo, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you meant it, right? And um and, and it feels good to listen to and that other people enjoy it at the end of the day. So with the Eurorack, speaking directly to the Eurorack, I don't know how to say this nicely, honestly. I am averse to a lot of the music that I hear made in the Eurorack environment. So now if you talk that, like we have this thing, 
uh, East Coast, West Coast thing. So that would be sort of John Cage and Zanotis would be kind of the West Coast thing. And the East Coast thing is your like tangerine dream. Okay. So like, yeah, harmonic music, like that people can listen to, or like you're being attacked by cicadas, right? It's like those <laughs> to the kind of polarities of sound, right? Now, what is interesting is about the Eurorack is it's very, very easy to make things, let's call them things, in that environment that are just bizarre, otherworldly, uh, captivating at times, but non-musical, right? And so, and I, I'll say this too, I think that that is the most fun thing about the Eurorack is because using your hands, in my case, I'm standing, it just kind of unlocks some different sorts of creative thinking. And I'm sure there's some neurological precept going on there. You're making more acetylcholine. It's like my smoke break, right? Like I don't smoke. So yeah. I get up and I use the Eurorack if I'm feeling stumped working on a score cue or whatever. And so I do think it can be a, a remarkable time sink. I've had friends that have gotten, you know, enmeshed in Euro rap culture that can, literally can't make music at this point because mm. they're just like collecting VCOs. And I'm like, you guys, oh, you make great music. <laughs> literally, what are you doing? So, um, yeah, but the inverse of that is if you're able to self-discipline, it can be like this incredible environment for just experimenting. And that's what I like. I like using it for two things. I, I have two sorts of patches I make. One is I'm trying to make music. Another is, is I'm just going wild and experimenting. I allocate time to do both those things regularly, monthly, um, to do both of them. And, and both of them can be fruitful exercises, although I would err on the side of saying that when I sit down to actually structure a piece of music and I'm working with step sequencers, I tune all my oscillators and you know, uh, and planning to do something, even if it's a little wild, right, in that environment, that it's more melodic. Those are the most fruitful exercises that that come out of there. So it's it's perceived with caution. I will say that with Eurorack, if you're doing wild experimental stuff with Eurorack, you always end up with like, you know, half an hour, forty minutes. Right. And it's like, right. how do you how do you keep that manageable? Do you have any like jam editing tips? Oh, well, yeah, I, I plenty actually. Yeah. I think one of the most fun things is doing exactly what you said, these long kind of jam sessions in that environment and then figuring out how to cut them down. So my first tip on that would be, you know, the, those expert sleeper modules that are in, in effect, an audio interface, like a DC decoupled audio interface, it can send control mm -hmm. signals or you can record into them. That's kind of in my mind, an essential part of a Euro rack setup. And that guy is lovely too. That makes those things. And it's Andrew, one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Andrew, that's right. It's one guy. He like writes the software. He does his ads. He does the emails. Yeah, he, he does, does tech support. He builds the modules by, he's like a remarkable guy. Anyway, um, his, his stuff is just in my mind, like I said, an essential part of the Euro rack thing. So my first, thought would be never record stereo jams because they're way harder to edit. And I did that for years on my Eurorack setup. And then when I got those expert sleeper modules, I was like, holy crap. So I'm going to record individual stems just like I do on everything else. And it's made it so much easier. Like 
I can take, you know, I'll render out stems. They it could be eight, let's say eight stems and <laughs> using your example, it's a half hour long. I take those, I pull them into Logic Audio on my main rig. I get the tempo sor sorted out. So I'm in, in range with what this fractional tempo would be that I did in the Eurorecker. And once I get things vaguely lined up to, to grid, I might flex marker things and then I'll go through, I like to jump through these long jams as if, you know, how people, kind of everyone these days, you know, sh the short attention span previews music, right? Like you, you listen about 15 seconds in and then you jump a minute in. And then if it's even worse, if you're looking at the waveform, you jump to the drop, then you listen to the breakdown and then you're like, ah, I don't know, I couldn't play this one out or whatever, right? It's like that. So I like to do that with these long jams to kind of jump. Okay, wow, this is really interesting, especially when you see a big sort of dominant shift in the waveforms. And I'll just start making markers uh, for sections of interest. And then I'll be really, really brutal about it. I might go get myself coffee, come back to the studio, and I'll go, all right, lock that seven minutes out. Who cares? Whatever. Just mm -hmm. cut it out. And then I jump from minute three to minute 14 or whatever it is, right? I said seven minutes, so I said minute 10, okay? And then uh, say I have one kind of cool ostinato part, but the filter jumped really wildly by doing that. I might pull back that ostinato part from the part that I'm cutting into and then crossfade it over a half a minute. So the filter gradually kind of open. So I'm just really brutal about editing these, these long jams, but that's typically how I do it is I make markers and then I get out of the studio for a couple minutes, take a head break and go back and just go, well, see you later, seven minutes, see you later, 11 minutes. Okay. Bye. See you then, yeah. you know, and I'm really sort of cutthroat about, about editing this stuff. And that's how I'm able to get them, get them finished. Hmm. The head break thing is really interesting. Is a, I read an interview with uh, Gold Panda, who's like a British British musician, and he said um, he was making an album. He was using like the MPC and just kind mm -hmm. of very simple music, but but really like really wonderful. And he he talked. He was like, I would I would be in the studio, I would be making music, and I would be walking the dog. And it was a period where there was no one in the house my parents were away, you know, and I would just go and walk the dog, make music, walk the dog. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of recognized that I'd done things like exactly as you say, when I've been really euphoric on a, on a piece of music, I've been so excited. I almost stand up and walk out of the studio. And it's that sort of getting away from it that is what stops you from fatigue. You know, it's the, it's the kind of, it's like listening fatigue from kind yeah. of, from, it's something that I should consciously remember to do. Guess, guess what? I've got a little hack for you, okay, which is really cool, is I don't know if you've heard about this, but the, the most amount of time you can effectively pay attention without taking a break is 52 minutes. There's study after study. Done. Yes. And so the optimal break time, this is going to sound crazy, okay, is 17 minutes. And you could, people listening to this, Google it, you'll see, find a study at Stanford or Harvard or one of these Ivy League schools do this study. And so if you're able to get yourself just a little, like an egg timer, and you basically set it for every hour, and you don't, I don't take 15 minutes, but I'll take five or seven, and I'll just get up and move around. You know, I might, mm. uh, I'm, something I think that's a, a real, sort of creative killer for people is getting on the internet 
checking email, checking social media while you're working. Mm. And so if you, you want to do those things and we all do, we have to do them for business, right? Make sure that you're only focused on making music. And if you can keep your attention on that for 52 minutes and then give yourself a 10 minute break, you will be so much more productive and you're going to have more perspective too, which is what you said and is so yeah. key. Cause I don't, I don't know about you, but I bet it's the same. And I'm sure for a lot of people listening to this, there have been times where I've been so hyped on something that I've been working on and I'll get up, I'll, I'll go have a, a meal or something. I'll sit outside, I'll walk our dog for a little bit and I'll come back and I'll say, Oh my gosh. I mean, there is a glaring 700 Hertz node on my snare drum and it was like just screaming in my face, but I was focused on this one little synth part and I wouldn't have heard it because I was so obsessed and I could have even just powered it out and finished that piece of music and there would have been an error in it. So my point is, is taking these breaks really do give you perspective. An, an, another sort of gift for that uh, and kind of like I was saying about audio editing and being really sort of, uh, pragmatic and cutthroat about it is I do the same with, I render everything to audio. So I don't live in the kind of MIDI do domain ever. Uh, the one exception to that would be if I'm doing kind of, you know, sort of deep sample orchestral composing because I have like a fixed auto load with thousands of instruments in it. So I can do full recalls of that without having audio. And plus that stuff doesn't really need to be time corrected. I'm not doing a lot of sound design on it. And eventually I do stem it out, but then I'll do interesting things to it and kind of standalone applications. So that is a one exception to this. But the reason I bring up rendering things as audio is it indicates an internal commitment, which I think is really important in the music making process where you say to yourself, this is good. I'm committing that this is gonna go in a piece of music. And the interesting sort of polar both and thought is I routinely will throw those things out. So I don't care if you, what you make something on, or if you work on something for seven hours, if that part at the end of the day isn't right, take it out. Bye. See you later. To be clear, because also because you're recording audio, you would literally have to delete and re-record it. You wouldn't, we wouldn't be, because you're, you don't have the MIDI, you're not. F endlessly tweaking a no or agonizing over timing no. or no. velocity. You're just like, no. it's wrong. Do it again. Yeah. No, you just Marie Kondo that mofo. It's like, <laughs> it's like, th thank you for what does she say? It's like, uh, thank you yes, for, thank uh, you for what you've done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you've and, done for me. And yeah, like, every, exactly. Thank you for teaching me about band pass filters today mm. and I'm done with you. <laughs> Goodbye. So, yeah. So, um, you know, I think it's really easy for us to get attached to things. There, there's going back to Dr. Boulanger. We did a project. One of my first projects in class with him was a project. And he, so it was this project where we had to prepare an entire composition. And this is floppy disk times, right? So I had a 3.5 floppy disk that I had, you know, my MIDI files for this on, all this stuff written out on, you know, uh, sort of traditional, you know, trouble bass clef sort of um, staff paper, right? And all my notes and everything. He said, prepare all of this and put it in a single folder. And I want you to come next week and you're going to present to the class. So we worked on it for a month. And so 
And I went second, so I knew it was coming. So the person stands, they present, they play their piece of music, and they talk about why they made the creative decisions that they made and so on and so forth. And, and then Dr. B says, okay, that's great. All right, pack your little folder up there and uh, put that in the, the trash can. And the person's <laughs> like, what? And literally, I mean, by, people cried. <laughs> I mean, I'm not joking either. People actually wept doing this. It, it, this. I call it an experiment, but it was an assignment. And what he was teaching us about, and he never explained it. But I know now, I understand it intimately. What he was teaching about, us about was attachment. And so we become so attached to like, there's always this big story. A friend of mine the other day was like, Oh yeah, well that's part is yeah, it's a SID chip and yeah, I, I, that's oh, six hours and I you know and I had to print that and then I had to denoise it and blah blah and I'm like yeah, it's not good. You should definitely take that out. And he's like, well, no, but did you hear what I said? Like I made it with this thing and I sat on the floor and then I took it and I, and I was like, but it's just take it out. It's not serving your composition. The composition way better with that not in there. And, um, and he did, he loved it. So we get attached to our story about how things happen and how much time they took and, you know, our, whatever our friend was, you know, mad with us that day. We get all this stupid stuff wrapped up in the creative process. When the scientific principle Occam's razor, you just cut it out. It's a very hard thing to do because we have, you know, where our brains are these kind of story creating machines, but I, I really do think it serves in the creative process. My, my mom's a, a psychiatrist and there's this principle in psychiatry called cognitive intervention. And it's this idea, um, sort of self-cognitive intervention. It's this idea that if you can pause for a moment between receiving some kind of stimuli, like somebody's coming at you really angry, right? And so if you're able to pause for a moment, instead of act reflexively, then you have a choice, right? And it's a similar kind of, it's a similar kind of thing in, in a way in that if you're able to get out of your own way in that way, again, it's this idea of giving a gift to your future self. Underneath all of this is a way bigger thought and idea, which is why, like, why are we even thinking about these things? Why are we so drawn to organizing these sounds? Like what, what is the why, right? And the interesting thing is, is that's different and it's unique for everyone. And there are some people that are drawn to music and the culture of music with a why that's not kind of congruent to who they are. And they're never going to be happy making music if that's those two things aren't reconciled. And so I think the creative process and the, you know, creative expression is kind of this fundamental language of communication that doesn't know, it's not adherent to a culture or a sex or, uh, you know, a race or a gender or any, it's just completely non-denominational. It knows no language boundaries and we, we can share these emotional states through music without speaking the same language. I mean, that alone is just absolutely remarkable. Mm. And when, when I think about why to make music, 
I think it's really important underneath all of this to have a fundamental understanding of your own personal why and make sure that that's lined up with something that's congruent with who you are as a person. And without those two things being kind of determinant or like matched, it, it creates conflict and ultimately doesn't make us happy in the creative process. So, you know, there's, there's some better whys than others, um, you know, but I think that it's an important thing for, for all of us to be focused on. You should be able to write down, in, in my humble opinion, you should be able to write down on a piece of paper in two sentences why you make music and remind yourself of that every day. You know, when you show up and it's frustrating or you show up and you're not getting the result you want, Remind yourself why you do this and what you love about it and what you're trying to express and who that's for and all of those kind of things, um, I think is, uh, is sort of fundamental to the creative process. Yeah, that's uh, and it's also that <laughs> I think a lot of Euroiraq people have to work this out because they, it's one of those <laughs> things where you buy stuff and you're like, what is my purpose? Like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's actually why I bought all this stuff. It's like, <laughs> so funny. Yeah, it's I've I've had this conversation where literally I've had this conversation with my my wife and uh, Lacey is so smart. Actually, she's helped with the Eurorack a lot. I'm going to give you another one that is hopefully helpful with the Eurorack. So yeah. I have a uh, you know conversation with her. I mean, she went to school for fine art for photography, right? Like she's she's an artist, but n not musically uh, inclined. However, like incredible ears, but she doesn't play an instrument or sing or anything like that, right? So I'm, I'm sitting explaining to her why I need more LFOs and envelopes. And she's like, you know, kind of like half there, like eyes squinted, like, why am I listening to this? Right. And she looked me straight in the eyes and she said, here's how we're going to do this. Okay. Are you ready? And I'm like, yeah, I think I'm not sure you look very serious right now. And she's like, it's hunger games. We're going to do hunger games with the Euro rack. If something else needs to go in, something has to die. And I'm like, whoa. So now my Eurorack is, it's a static object. It literally, I haven't put something in my Eurorack for maybe, I mean, maybe the last module I got was probably a year and a half ago or something. Now, the coolest part of that is I've put things, I really spent a lot of time organizing them on modular grid PS, which is a little shout out to those guys. It's amazing there. It's great. Isn't and it? yeah. it's so good. And so, you know, really thought it out like, you know, okay, I, I, mean, I don't want to have to stretch tip top stackables halfway across the room to get from this one thing that I commonly patch to the other one. Oh, you made me think of something else too about the URAC. I'm going I'm to speak to that in a second. So, but anyway, so it's now a fixed object. It's like an instrument and, you know, I couldn't work it with my eyes shut, but I know where everything is by muscle memory now. Yeah. Um, you asked me before something great about the clocks. So what I do in, in that area is I'm using a couple different thing, things to generate clocks. So actual um, pulse is generated from that SBX80 and from some SBX1s, depending on the division. And then I'm using a malt and I literally have any module. I wish we were on Zoom. I could show you this. Any module that has clock is patched. I never mm. patch clock ever over there. Now, if I want to subdivide the clock or I want to change the clock, I will unpatch it. 
I'll take a stackable, put it on the clock cable that was in it, and then go to something, divide down or multiply up, whatever, blah, blah. You, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. But I can go to that and I never have to patch clock, which is when Richard Devine was here last and he saw, he's like, dude, what are these things coming from behind the modules? I was like, I drilled a hole in the back of the Eurorack case, a massive hole, like a inch uh, in diameter hole. And I put this loom in the back and then I've left little blanking panels. So like, uh, I can't remember the thickness, but I've drilled a hole in them and I've pulled the cable through and it's right next to the module and the clock is patched. So I never patch clock ever in the, in the Eurorack environment. All the step sequencers are ready to rock. The ER101 is my favorite, by the way. And, um, and I love Intel. Nothing scares me, the ER101. I don't oh, know. I don't know how it's like, it looks dude. too mathematical. So check it out. Here's what's so cool. Okay. So it, it is, it's a bit of a cluster cuss. Just if you're not used to that idea of doing it by numbers. But don't get me wrong, like I like the kind of IntelliGel, what's the one that's modeled after the System 100A? The Metropolis. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like I love that with, you know, kind of the, you know, slider to grab, you know, your voltages, whether it's, you know, duration, if it's passion or envelope or if it's pitch or whatever you're doing it for is such a great way to do it. And there's something so much fun about just looping on a note and changing, you change the pitch with the knob, and so you're listening, and you can hold on that step, and that step is binging at the clock rate, and you listen, you're like, okay, like yeah. that one, and then you let off the button, and then you set its duration, and you move to the next one, and I'll tell you what, if you get into a rhythm with that, you will find yourself writing some sequences that are so wildly different to something you would write with sliders, and certainly unrelated to something you write in a DAW, it's a lot lower learning curve than you would think with a lot higher payoff. I, I, that's, mm. It's my favorite sequencer in that environment. You just write the weirdest stuff that turns around weird. I'll do ostinatos on that ER101, and you know, I'll do one in 6.4 and another one in 4.4 and one in 7.8. These weird things kind of you know, Manuel Goshing, you know, Tangerine Dream. Oh, sorry. yeah, E2, E4 vibes. Oh, dude, the greatest record, like, ever made. I never get to talk about that one. It's I, I love that you know that. So many people it. don't know that record. Yeah, yeah, um, I've got a CD of it. I've just been rebuying CDs because I gave I up Spotify. It. So I've literally got E2, E4s on its way to me. I love it, man. Oh, it's one of my favorite. It's literally so funny story about that. Um, I guess I was probably about... 18 and it was when winter music conference started i took a train down there i stayed in a youth hostel and there was a group of about i think about 25 of us there and um there were certainly no kind of punters or fans whatever you know it was a small group of people at the fountain blue hotel in miami and one of the people that was there i mean masters at work todd terry carl craig um you know one at everybody like i mean it, you know kind of who's who of the early kind of you know house and detroit techno guys and uh kevin saunderson was there um masters at work i think i mentioned but anyway josh wink was there and josh played in a small club more like a bar and i had never heard that record before and he played it in the middle of like a kind of like a house sort of techno type Oh, set. oh wow and he played the entire record 
And I literally, <laughs> I lost my mind. It was literally like a religious experience. I'm not kidding. I remember it so viscerally. He played the entire thing. And I was like, this is one of the most incredible pieces of music I have ever heard in my entire life. And it, it really informed for me what is possible, I think, in a lot of ways, insofar as electronic music. And it's something, it's like a high I've been chasing since then, that feeling of just, it's just, it's like a, a place, that record, you know? It, it feels yeah, like, it's it it not is. like a piece it's of music. Yeah, exactly. It's an island. I love you go, that. You go sit on it. Oh, it's a and it's a live jam, isn't it? It's a jam. Yeah, it was yeah. just a. It's just one of the greatest ra electronic records, literally in the history of electronic music ever. He's using he's using a box that has eluded me too, and I I see them every now and again. I mean, when I say every now and again, I mean every five seven years. Come up on something like Reverb or eBay. It's kind of somewhere in between. A bucket brigade delay and a reverb it's in that weird kind of no man's land mm. but a lot of the effect signature of the that record is this box it's any nerds like us listening to this look that up and then send me the link it's a multi-tap delay but that you can make these really primitive reverb type sounds with but is mm. apparently just absolute epic magic effects box mm. and yeah That's, i'm on the prowl for sounds a little bit like the uh, make noise mimeophone where it's like delay and reverb if i don't know if that comes within your one one and a half years of your iraq but maybe it <laughs> snuck in on the last no sort of like no get into bt's yeah. rig before he locks down like <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's it's not it's not made it it really i'm telling you there's a pay there's a payoff to it there really is like i you know I know exactly where my braids is. I know where my tip top audio ZD DSP is. I know my, I've got a spot for my cards where those live and, and I can make patches really quick in that environment, uh, be because it has stayed, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. So I've got, um, I have my sort of, it's a stock question mm -hmm. and it's a, you know, it's a, a difficult one, but what, an interesting one, especially for yourself, because you actually have you're producing electronic music equipment and tools. It can be seen different ways, like what either what you think should change or what you would like to do but you can't. It's a phenomenal question. So the future of music and creative technology is artificial intelligence, without question. And um, when you get into this conversation, a lot of people think you know, sort of Black Mirror, sci-fi, Philip K. Dick type stuff. Yeah. These, the, because I, I work in software development regularly, um, I mentioned at the beginning of this, you know, working on 11 applications as we speak and have been doing a tremendous amount of research and development in the AI space over the last four years with guided adversarial networks, convolution based neural networks, uh, recursive neural networks, and have actually amassed a really sizable training base of some things around some applications and ideating around some things that will end up in applications that I'm, I'm working on currently. So that is absolutely without question, the future of, I mean, humanity. I will say that anyone that pushes back on this is um, living in uh, uh, under a, a rock. And I want this to be con 
controversial and confrontational. And here's why. Because if you have this sort of Luddite mindset that artificial intelligence is not going to be not just in our daily life in the creative space, but potentially overtake the ability of humans, then you're not going to help sculpt what the future is. And, and this is why I want this to be aggressively confrontational, because it is up to us as the artist community to sculpt what this means. And if we don't, you're going to see things like Spotify, which is taking, you know, an artist's ability to support themselves, right? And then it translates into 1% of 1% of the population and everyone mm -hmm. else, uh, you know, the, the only people that make uh, money from something like Spotify are... 1% of 1% of artists and Daniel Eck and everyone at Spotify knows that he even speaks to it. And, um, everybody else yeah. might make 25 bucks a month, sometimes for millions of listens too. And so if you but want, surely, surely do you, is your music on your music must be on Spotify. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I tell you something funny? <laughs> I'll tell you something funny about Spotify. I had a conversation with my publisher the other day. This will give you an idea of, how well you do from these kind of things. And like I said, we are so lucky. I, we have other ways that we're able to support ourselves. And, um, and, and so we're very, very lucky in that way. I have a lot of friends that don't. So when in that big jump from iTunes to Spotify, they're gone. They have regular jobs now. And these were A-list electronic music artists. And um, so I'm not going to call out by any names, but it literally destroyed the livelihoods of many, many people and artificial intelligence is going to do that 10,000 X if we do not curate what that means insofar as the creative community. So I'm, I'm waving a big red flag for everybody to, it's something that, yeah. Sorry. I was going to say, like, I've heard, like, uh, there was a musician who basically, like, you can, you can algorithmically generate music by like you can feed david bowie's catalog into into these things and it spits out bowie like music and it's that sort of you know it's we're almost having the same kind of discussions that people had when synthesizers and drum machines first came out where it's like yeah your synthesizer is going to replace you know you can make a trombone and i won't be able to play the trombone anymore or drum machines are killing music you know but the i think is there not an argument that it's if if what Spotify are doing are kind of the way that Spotify works in that it, the way it creates playlists for functions. So it's music to chill to like music to, mm -hmm. you know, code to, or music to jog to. It's not put on your headphones, strap in, you're going to hear BT's new record. But I suppose then therefore what, how can we use AI for good? What's the positive? Oh, I can. Okay. So, I mean, if you want me to speak to this, so, well, I can, so first of all, let's make a linguistic distinction and it's a very important one. I detest when people say, and I do it, I'm guilty of it myself. So not like g getting in your face, but like when we say the Spotify algorithm, it's artificial mm. intelligence. So Spotify is doing song topography. They're doing audio feature set identification. They have a massive training set, which is basically every piece of recorded music. It is artificial intelligence. Yeah. It's not an algorithm. It's artificial intelligence. That is what 
I would consider Spotify more of an artificial intelligence company than a music aggregator. So, and yeah. they probably internally refer to themselves in a similar way. So I think it's a very important distinction. So secondly, now what you have is an entire generation of people creating music for, it's really kind of a double plus on good sort of Orwellian type thing. People will say, well, for the algorithm, you gotta make sure that something really interesting happens in the first 30 seconds. And you're like, hang on a second here. So you're telling me that you're making a piece of music to appease artificial intelligence? Are you hearing yourself? You're making music for computer. And I would argue that it's made people less happy. It's made people feel less connected. It's made people more bored with music. It's made the turnover rate of music higher because people are create. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, uh, to, you know, to use uh, fast food as an example, right? Like if you get a, a quarter pounder with cheese, that has been focus grouped and people wearing dual hemisphere electroencephalographs. So they've gamed the exact right amount of sugar and salt to stimulate the same parts of your brain with Oreos. Let's use Oreos because I happen to know, I read a study about it. Stimulates the same part of your brain that's stimulated when you use cocaine. Okay, so th that's how disingenuous the creators of Oreos are. And, and then what happens after you eat Oreos? Your sugar crashes, you know, your insulin goes through the floor. It's like a, an, a, you know, a religious experience eating an Oreo, right? You're like on cocaine, okay? And then you crash, it's terrible for you. So the same thing is happening with music. I would argue that it's why people are so hungry for music experience. Because they're experiencing, their experience of music now is exactly what you said. It's this ephemeral passing experience and it's in the background. So it's music to chill to. So what does that indicate? You're chilling. You're doing something else. It's music to run to or to work out to. What does that indicate? You're doing something else. Music to study to. Same thing. And so I would say that people are dying for authentic music experiences. Now to wrap this whole thing up, you said something that is one of the most important things that we need to be thinking about. And it's what the musical community needs to rally around. I privately talk to people about this all the time. I've never talked about this publicly. I'm going to seed this idea here. So, and I've never heard anyone else ever talk about this. Okay. I would argue that an artist is the sum total of their life experience expressed creatively in decisions. So our preferences are expressed creatively as decisions, right? And it would seem really, really complex. Well, this person wrote this really sad piece of music when their father passed away, right? Like how is that a, a hierarchical tree of decision-making? It, it, it is. And I can tell you from looking at the way that particularly convolution-based neural networks analyze these massive data sets of material, they don't need names for variables like we do. They're not thinking like attack transient or timbre or aperiodic or periodic signal. They're just thinking, I see similarities in this data set across tens of thousands, if not 30, 50,000 variables. So an artist is 
this sum total hierarchy, hierarchical tree of decision making. So what is that actually in the, the artificial intelligence space? We would call that a training set. I believe that an artist should legally have the right to patent their training set. So when we make this quantum jump and it's going to happen not inside 15 years, not inside 50 years, inside 10, more like inside five. When we make this quantum jump from non-generative music and humans making music to generative music, if an artist is not legally protected as a training set, that artist will be cloned in this space and music like their works will be enjoyed for people and people in Silicon Valley will decide what that's worth. And I guarantee you, like Daniel Eck paid himself more than the sum total of all royalties in Spotify for almost the entire duration of Spotify, those kind of decisions will be made and they will not benefit the artistic community. So I would say that artists need to rally around this idea that their preference has value. It's kind of like data in, um, uh, you know, when we talk about data protection and privacy in the internet, think that, but you know, 50,000 X you've studied your whole life. Uh, you've had all of these life experiences and they are expressed as musical decisions. And those decisions can be quantified, you know, 77% of the time you might choose a, a D minor nine chord after an F sharp major chord. It's just numbers. It's all it is, is numbers. And all you need is a big enough training set to feed artificial intelligence. And you make a new algorithm out of this training set. And that algorithm is a person. And so eventually these two things will collide. And if artists are not protected that as a, a training set, um, there won't be artists anymore. Damn. <laughs> oh my god i suppose then the question is how do you how can you protect the the sort of style of your music you get into a, a thing where you need musicologists and sort of uh you know people to say this is a bt riff but i just don't know how we can police it i suppose is the is the fear and that they'll they'll just sort of subsume people's music without a robust enough legal system or you know the legal system will be scrambling to deal with it a little bit like when sampling kicks off in the late 80s right mid, you know mid to late 80s and the legal system was just like what what is this like we've never had to deal with this before and, and they catch up but it takes them a few years and in the meantime you know Scraftwork didn't get you know the winstons get nothing for amen brother and you know it's like that's that's a, yeah. the, it's exactly right the laws catch up way later and it's why i keep waving a red flag it's funny because the artistic, the, the, the music community has this real strong aversion to artificial intelligence. It's like an uncanny valley sort of thing. And that, that's a great read. If, if you don't know what that is, read about it. It's, it's fascinating. It's basically mm, the closer yeah. we get to emulating something, the more repulsed we feel by it. And so people have, people don't, they will literally push back on this idea that this is 
ever going to be possible, much less in the immediate future. And I'm literally watching people working on things. I mean, Google Project Magenta, the Google project, it's like it's writing Bach fugues that musicologists can't tell aren't Bach. It's, it's crazy what's happening right now. And so my answer to what your question was there is we have to rally around this idea and we need to pass laws. We need to go before, you know, parliament and Congress. We need to, we need to rally around this idea that an artist artistic preference training set, we need to come up with a good name for it is, uh, can be patented and protected and, um, can be monetized too. So, um, and the upside to all of this and kind of the every cloud just to sort of, <laughs> you know, kind of nice little circle is that if we do do this, it is going to give artists the ability to clone themselves. And so you can have kind of infinity things making things that you can ultimately curate, but that are to your preference immediately. And this is my interest yeah. in artificial intelligence. It's to augment the creative workflow. And I think it's possible, but it's going to take the artistic community being involved in this, believing it's possible and protecting their data and, uh, and tell people, I fear that people are going to, you know, that we might see some of the Amen Brothers sort of thing or what happens with drone technology. No one knows what to do. And the laws catch up kind of too late. So um, I think that the more people that are thinking about this and involved in it, the better. And it's something um, it's something I plan on uh, trying to spearhead something with Naris and uh, about this because Naris does speak before you know American Congress regularly and um, have had a lot to do for advocating for streaming royalties. And I, I spearheaded a project with them about ten maybe longer than that, about 15 years ago for best electronic album for Grammy. And everyone laughed at me. They said I was crazy. No one cared about electronic music. And I hired, um, uh, I hired a writer for the LA times. We did a 50 page prospectus on electronic music. And I pitched it to all those old school engineers that mix like Steely Dan records and thought I was like some crazy kid with a stupid haircut. And finally they acquiesced. And now there's the best electronic album category, which really means something for American, um, American musicians. So Naris is a great organization mm -hmm. and I'm sure that there are equivalencies in, in England and in other places, but these are things that we need to be thinking about and rallying around to protect the artistic community or it quite literally will evaporate at a point. So, um, so we're at a crossroads and, uh, it can, it can be great or it can be not. And so, you know, it's up to us to decide that. Wicked. Yeah. Thank you very much. Oh, man, my pleasure. Yes, mate. Thank you, BT. And it is BT. I checked. Uh, even his mum calls him BT, he said. Uh, so it's definitely BT. What a nice man. And also, I love the use of the term cluster cuss, um, which I will have to try and use. Uh, reminds me of fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, yes, 
Flipping heck, a lot of stuff to unpack there, isn't there? Just thinking about how to manage gear more than anything. That is absolutely on point. The whole thing of separating modular so that it's an idea station that really, really resonated. And that is how I have found modular to be the most effective. But also, obviously, BT is also using expert sleeper stuff and integrating modular with, um, you know, with computer too. The idea of having all your clocks set up so you don't have to like do all this fiddly stuff. The idea of auto loads where you just clack a switch and all your gear is just ready to go. All the MIDI is plumbed. All the stuff is done. The idea of using days where you don't feel creative to organize your studio. Such an on point thing to say. It's absolutely right. If you don't feel like writing music, well, tidy up and make things ready. Do sound design put together sample libraries of your own gifts to give yourself in the future that you can use like such good stuff like that is just gold um and the things that you may have you know intuitively you sort of end up doing like i tidy my studio and i feel better but i don't i wish i thought about it in such a you know <laughs> such a kind of structured positive way and structure is also the point i actually did i followed up with um you know, with BT's manager, just to sort of ask the question, like what, when he was referring to kind of structure of his days, what did he mean? And I think he does, he literally does compartmentalize his day into sort of activities. And, you know, he was talking about having time made for experimentation, um, you know, time for exercise, time for other things. And it's actually weirdly, it's something I've been doing over the last few weeks after speaking to him. We're thinking, um, you know, independently arriving at the point that it's become essential to kind of schedule our days. This is, you know, me and with a family and a job and, you know, YouTube videos and things that I'm making and podcasts that I have to create. You know, I have to try and find time for these things in the day. Let me tell you, it is not not easy, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, hence, I am probably one of, you know, I make the least amount of stuff compared to a lot of the YouTubers I know, but that's because it's not my full-time job, you know, and so I have to try and compartmentalise it and it works, you know. And also, how can you not love a man that has his 90s rig set up in the corner of his studio exactly as it was when he first started making music? That to me is just like... It's just chef's kiss. That is chef's kiss is what it is. I mean, wow. And that you would set up rigs in this way and compartmentalizing the music process, like accepting that certain gear needs to be separate and just used in its own sort of right and can be used as an idea station and integrated in other ways. There's a sort of sense that it's not, always necessary that a studio needs to be fully integrated and that you learn that it's okay to use certain bits of gear off in their own little setup. Do you know what I mean? I think it's that thing of, I think it's too tempting to consider wiring absolutely everything that you may own together. Um, and there's something to be celebrated in just using bits of gear individually. It's what I do when I make YouTube videos, you know, it'll just be me and a, a drum machine and a synth and I'll do something very stripped. And a lot of the things that I will put into my YouTube videos, you know, quite clearly are things that could have tracks built around them. And I think it's sort of telling that BT's kind of built his studio in, to a degree in that sort of way, in the sense that he does have 
areas. He has bits of self-contained gear that he knows work well together, and he goes and gets inspired on those, and then pulls the results over into the you know the center of the room where he can organize and chop it up a bit better. And then, of course, also what you said about AI, flipping heck, flip in heck. This is the sort of question I was asking: is just how how can we patent our training sets? But he's absolutely right that if we don't think of a way, people will find ways to take your music and re-engineer it from the ground, reverse engineer your music and understand the decision-making that goes down to it. Because I mean, when all said and done, you know, if we can have YouTube videos that people make, you know, how to make a track like Dead Mouse or, you know, how to make a track like BT, then that means that, that we're able to discern qualities, elements, components, and um, whatever they may be from choice of sound to choice of time signature and, and melodic sort of phrasing that are unique to a particular person. We're doing it as humans and we unquestionably are starting to see artificial intelligence, which is able to make, you know, to do things that previously would, I truly have said, oh, you know, a computer can't paint. You can never get a beautiful artistic painting, but we now know that computers can paint beautifully well and create amazing, inspiring art. Um, Of course, it needs a human to lens it and choose what, what remains and what what to stick on the wall and what to throw in the bin. But the point still stands. Computers can be taught to paint, then it can be taught to make music too. Um, And so I think he's absolutely right. I don't think there is a way that we're not going to come up against issues with musicians' livelihoods um, made all more difficult by, you know, trying to make money from the recorded medium that they will be facing piracy of a whole different level (laughs) piracy not of the recorded music they've made but their very talent their very themness (laughs) that is a mind-blowing thing but it is round the corner because it's as he says it's already happening so thank you bt for chatting to me loved it BT's album, by the way, The Lost Art of Longing, is out now. Obviously, you can stream it, but I would encourage you to buy it. Go and buy his music. He has written some amazing music, and you might be interested to know that BT has written some stuff that you almost... I didn't think of as... I didn't even realise that he'd written kind of ambient and sort of, you know, sound is like incredible sort of almost Armand Tobin sort of sound design music. Um, But he has. There's an amazing pair of albums, a double album called Between Here and You and Everything You're Searching For is on the Other Side of Fear. He, He literally released two albums kind of at once, which is just bananas. Go and listen to those. Like everything you're searching for is on the other side of fear is especially um, wild expression and creativity using just every piece of, you know, music equipment that you could dream to own, you know, use properly. It's great. Go check it out. Check out the other Why We Bleeps. There are many, many bleeps. If you are interested in chats like this, 
Thank you to our sponsors, that is Signalsounds.com for all your gear needs and Skillshare. It's very good. Go and look at some of the classes and stuff that you can teach yourself. And what I would love is for people to actually go on there and just learn stuff, actually teach yourself new skills. It's, it is truly a win-win. Um, I'm very much believing it. So check it out. Be well. Take care. Put your mask on. Wash the hands. Keep your distance. But I hope to see you soon. Thanks.